opening by asking you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. If you are already in Hebrews chapter 7, keep your finger there because we'll be turning back in just a moment. Isaiah chapter 53. And follow along with me. Beginning with verse 1. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking about the coming Messiah. And he writes, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the Christ, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He would divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That is one of the most amazing chapters in all of the Bible. 
And it is one, I submit to you, that the nation of Israel to this day doesn't know what to do with. When they meet together and read through the prophets, they will not read this passage. Perhaps it sounds too much like Jesus. We are studying the book of Hebrews. And we are in chapter 7. And to understand the book of Hebrews, we must first understand something of the Old Testament priesthood. To understand the priesthood, we must have some understanding of the sacrifices. And to understand the sacrifices, we must have some understanding about sin. And to understand how the Bible addresses the problem of sin, we must understand something of God's justice. This morning we come to the end of chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews, and you can turn there if you haven't already. It's a chapter which I believe last week God used in an extraordinary way to reveal and to remind to us, remind us the excellencies of Christ, the glory of Christ, and that I believe is exactly what the author when he wrote the book of Hebrews hoped would occur in the hearts of the original readers and in our hearts as well. His desire was to set the dazzling jewels of the living Christ upon the backdrop of the Old Testament Levitical system so that we would all discover how precious and how beautiful Christ is and how much we need him. It seems to me that there just isn't much interest in the Old Testament these days. And there's good reason I think for us to be good students of the Old Covenant. And good students always ask good questions because that's how we unearth the riches of the Word of God. For example, if when we read the Old Testament we ask ourselves, why did God give Israel a special priesthood? Then the answer comes, Because there had to be sacrifices. And if we then ask, why must there be such sacrifices? The answer comes, because God's justice must be satisfied before he can be merciful and gracious to sinners. These are the underlying realities behind the message of the book of Hebrews that we as Gentiles and a few 21st century Jews can easily miss. And the danger of missing them is that we might not comprehend how great is our salvation and how glorious is our Savior. And so this morning, let's invest a few minutes attempting to deepen our understanding and appreciation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it has been presented to us in the book of Hebrews. I want to begin this morning by sharing with you what I think is the truth of our current state in Western society. I believe in Western society today, evangelism is perhaps more difficult than it's ever been since the beginning of the United States of America. Not so much because Christians are afraid to share their faith. We shouldn't have much fear. I mean, Christianity is still a major part of our culture. 
Most people claim to be Christians and most people claim to go to church. And so it's not that we're afraid to share our faith. Rather, the reason I believe we are living in an age in Western culture that is most difficult to share the gospel is because of the prevailing view of how a person can draw near to God because that's become so skewed. That has become so twisted. Even in the church... There is very little clarity about how a person can draw near to God. And those are the words that are used again and again and again in the book of Hebrews, right? Draw near, draw near. Hold fast, draw near. Hold fast, draw near. Hold fast, draw near. R.C. Sproul points out, if anything has been lost from our culture, it's the idea that human beings are privately, personally, individually, ultimately, and inexorably accountable to God for their lives. It used to be an assumption that, as the book of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, what? Ah, y'all are good. Judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so the question has always been, how do we prepare for that day? How do we prepare for the judgment day? Songs have been written about it. A lot of black spirituals written about it. It used to be that the fear of God, in terms of the fear of the coming judgment on the day that we die, was an inhibitor to our sin. But not anymore. Why? Because we don't believe that we're going to have to give an account. Our view of God has changed. We no longer believe in a God of judgment. We no longer believe in a God who will hold us accountable for our lives. I think the the reason people don't want to hear the gospel in our time is largely because they don't believe God will hold them accountable for their sin. Brett and Andy were out this week sharing the gospel with some college students, and they told me the story of one they were sharing with when who pressed said he didn't believe that there was a hell. And when pressed with the logical and biblical evidence that there is indeed an eternal place of judgment for those who reject God's salvation in Christ, he simply said, I don't believe in hell because I don't believe in hell. Isn't that frustrating? How do you argue with that? To which I would want to say, maybe God doesn't believe in you. Does your lack of belief in hell make hell go away? And this is a real problem. And frankly, it's a fairly recent one. It used to be that there was some consensus about the idea, the truth, that someday we would stand before God and give an account of our lives. But you see, if people today understood that there is a holy God in heaven who will one day hold them accountable for their sins, I tell you, there would be a breaking down of the church doors and a mass of people asking, what must we do to be saved? And that's what happened during the Great Awakenings, right? Both of them. George Whitfield came and began preaching up and down the East Coast. Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon The Spirit swept through the East Coast. And we look back on some of those sermons, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God in particular, and we beat that thing down as if it's a useless piece of scrap paper 
fit only for the annals of history and for maybe the kindling pile. Because we don't believe in the God of the Bible anymore. We've made for ourselves an idol. We've made God after our own thinking, after our own desires, after our own wants. So we can't comprehend that God would still be a God of judgment. And let me tell you, Jonathan Edwards' God is still angry. Why is all this happening? Why does it seem that God has turned his back on America and the Holy Spirit has moved to a different part of the globe? I mean, you talk to missionaries who are in Africa right now, and they're saying, please help us. We can't, we, we can't keep up with the number of people who are entering the kingdom. You talk to people in China, please help us. We can't keep up with the number of people who are entering the kingdom. And yet in America, I forget what statistics I read about how many churches in America close every week. And it seems like the Holy Spirit has indeed moved south of the equator and east. Because people, even those who say they believe in God, don't believe that in the end he will demand the satisfaction of his justice. Again, R.C. Sproul writes, the prevailing notion of justification in Western culture, listen to this, the prevailing notion of justification in Western culture today is justification by death. It's assumed that all one has to do to be received into the everlasting arms of God is to die. And you are received. And I think the reason so few people in our society respond positively to the gospel is because deep in their hearts they believe that on the day they pass out of this life, they will stand before God who is all love, all grace, all compassion, all tolerance, and all forgiveness. He's not going to be judgmental. He's not going to grade the quality of our lives. Everybody passes. Nobody fails. Everyone's included. And nobody gets rejected. That's the God of this world. That's the God of this age. And it has largely become the God of the Western church. The problem is that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the God, the kind of God that is written for us in the Holy Scriptures. And frankly, that kind of God cannot be a God of grace and mercy because in the universe where that kind of God rules, grace and mercy lose their meaning. There is no such thing as grace if there's no judgment. There is no such thing as mercy if there is no justice. Right? Or to say it more plainly, it's simply this. If the bad news isn't really, really bad, then the good news isn't really that good. Any wonder? So few people are entering the kingdom. The bad news seems pretty good. Why do we need the good news? And the gospel is skewed. And the masses are led astray. You see, beloved, because God is holy, Because 
He is in his essence, the very definition and standard of perfect purity and moral perfection in the universe. He will always, always, always do what is right. Right? Therefore, he cannot excuse sin. He cannot simply look the other way. His holiness demands justice. And his justice must, it must, it must be satisfied. He must pass judgment on sin. He has no option because of who he is in his person. He is holy, holy, holy. And because of that holiness, he cannot look at our sin and say, that's okay. I wink at that. I mean, none of us are perfect. He must pass judgment on sin. It is an eternal law. It is the infinite law of God. When there is sin, where there is sin, there must be justice. Listen, any rogue judge can have a criminal stand before him and say, not guilty. And we would rise up and and do everything in our power to get that judge off the bench, would we not? Why? Because that's a crime. That's a crime. We think we want to live in the world where we overlook sin. We overlook sin. We overlook sin. But eventually, guess what happens? Society implodes. When justice does not prevail, society eventually implodes. It is the very basis. It is the very cornerstone. It is the root of all order. Where there is sin, there must be justice. Therefore, God must either, listen, two options. God then finds himself in a place where he must either punish sinners or find some way to atone for their sin. You see that? Because God is holy, he is also just. His justice must be satisfied when there is sin. But he loves sinners. How is God going to save sinners when his holy justice demands that sin be paid for? He must either cast us all into hell or he must find a way to atone for our sin. Now, the good news for sinful man is that God is not only just, he is also gracious and compassionate and full of loving kindness and truth. The good news is that God takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked and as Paul says, in 1 Timothy 2.4, he even desires all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. And the hope of mankind is that God in his grace will make some provision to satisfy his own justice on our behalf so that we will not have to stand naked in our sin before the bar of his infinitely holy court on that day. 
For as the author of Hebrews warns, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are laid open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Did you ever hear of that passage being a warning? We like to use that text, right? The Word of God is living and active. It's the power of our ministry. The context is, you better be fearful. You better be sobered by this. That on that day you stand before God. He will wield His sharp sword against your life. And there will be nothing hidden. There will be no sin that his justice does not slay. Is it any wonder then that the same author of Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Why? Because his holiness demands that his justice be satisfied against sin. A holy God simply cannot overlook sin. His holiness demands that justice be satisfied by passing judgment against sin. If we don't understand that, beloved, Hebrews to us will be a boring book. It'll be a boring book second only to Leviticus upon which Hebrews is based. How many of you have been having your quiet time in Leviticus this week, huh? It's tough. What does all that mean? Why is all of that stuff there? How do you read this without falling asleep? But if we understand the holy justice of God, I submit to you that nothing can thrill our hearts more than the truths that are found here in this book Because what we discover in the pages of the book of Hebrews is that this just and holy God whose very essence and being demands that he judges sin, this very God has found a way. He's found a way both to satisfy his own holy justice and save sinners whom he loves. We see the seeds of this grace all the way back in the Garden of Eden. What did God say when he left Adam and Eve in the garden with all of the trees, the garden? He gave them a simple warning, did he not? He said, don't eat of that tree, for on the day you eat of it, what? You will surely die. And so what did they do? As soon as he left the garden, they ran over and ate from that tree. They sinned. God had already told them, I can't fellowship with sinners. Because of that sin, you must surely die. 
and they sinned. Now what? What did Adam and Eve do? They hid. And they knew that sin was a problem. And so they thought in their minds, how do we resolve this? How do we take care of our sins? Therefore, they made a what? Covering. Out of what? How ridiculous is that? Fig leaves to cover sin. And we often do the same thing, right? All kinds of ways to hide our sin rather than deal with it. God comes along in His grace, in His mercy, doesn't send a lightning bolt down. Here, His justice is crying out for satisfaction. His mercy is crying out as well, not as if they were in competition. But here is a God who wants to be merciful, and yet His justice demands satisfaction. And He finds them dressed in their little fig leaf power suits. And He addresses what they had done and why. But then he does something significant that you may miss. He also made a covering after their sin. But it wasn't a covering of fig leaves. It was a covering of what? Skin. Where did he get that? Someone had to die. Was it a sufficient sacrifice to pay for their sin? No. But God had already told them, someday a son of Eve will arise who will crush that serpent's head. And until that day, your sin must be covered or you will surely die. There must be a substitute. The only way that my justice can stay intact and your life can be preserved is if someone else dies in your place. But even then, if it is a sinful person who dies in your place, it will achieve nothing. And if it's an amoral animal who dies in your place, it will only achieve covering. God had a plan. We see this again. Remember when Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices? Did you ever wonder, why did God get so upset at Cain's sacrifice? Why did he accept Abel's? Or you remember what those offerings were. Cain offered from the fruit of the what? Ground. He offered more leaves. He offered fruit. He offered vegetables. He did not offer anything that God could use to cover his sin. But Abel took from the firstlings of his flock, and it was a sweet aroma to God. What does that mean? Whenever you see sweet aroma, think of this word, satisfied. Satisfied. At least for a little while, his justice and his wrath were temporarily satisfied. 
Or you could say it this way. It temporarily made propitiation for that sin. In other words, it temporarily satisfied God's wrath. But only temporarily. And then we move through history of Israel and there are a lot of other scripture we could look at, but consider this. When God led Israel out of Egypt, Aaron was set aside on Mount Sinai to be priest, the first high priest, and his sons were appointed to serve with him. And by the way, I think I mentioned this last week, if you read that story, Nadab and Abihu did something unusual. They kind of made up their own form of worship. I mean, this was all inauguration day. They thought they could do it better somehow, and so they offered what the King James says, strange fire. We don't know what that was, but maybe they mixed something something in the incense that wasn't supposed to be there. I don't know, but they sinned. And what happened? God struck them dead. God struck them dead. Why? Why on inauguration day... The beginning of the whole complicated sacrificial system did God strike dead two of the priests. I think he did it for this reason. Maybe you can come up with a better reason. But I think it's obvious. He did it to show that God's justice cries out against sin and it must be satisfied. And all of those sheep and all of the goats and all of the red heifers and all of those animals that would die would cry out with that truth again and again and again for hundreds and hundreds of years. God's justice must be satisfied. And yet, as we read the Bible, we come to understand that none of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant And before that, could really fully satisfy the infinite justice of God. After all, how could a mortal and amoral beast of the earth provide anything of eternal value on behalf of sinners? The author of Hebrews again in chapter 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's just another way of saying it is impossible for the blood of mortal creatures to satisfy the infinite justice of God. Nevertheless, God in his mercy ordained imperfect sacrifices to provide a temporary covering for the sins of man who offered it in faith, in faith, in faith. It wasn't the sacrifice. It wasn't the sacrifice that saved them. It was their faith in God that said, God, I don't understand all the ramifications of this sacrifice and all of the things that you've laid out in this complicated system, but I trust you. My hope is in you for salvation. Because you say it, I will obey. Perhaps not fully realizing every day of atonement every Passover that came around, every time the family offered another sacrifice, they were proclaiming the need for God's holy justice to be satisfied and the grace of God in making a temporary provision. 
And so what they offered on those altars day after day, year after year, millennia after millennia were imperfect sacrifices. Not only that, but they were offered by imperfect priests. Now we're getting into the message of Hebrews, right? We've learned in Hebrews 7, the priesthood was imperfect in the sense that it could never really bring sinners all the way to the desired end. And you see that, right? In chapter 7, beginning with verse 11, it says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what's that mean? Perfection is not in the Levitical priesthood. And we asked last week, what does perfection mean, right? This is an important word. And we said that this word is kind of an unusual word because what it means is not moral perfection. What it means is completion, as if I set out to complete a goal and I do complete it. Or I set out an objective for my life and I keep it. Or a prophecy is spoken and it is fulfilled. It is that kind of perfection. It is a perfection that is in reference to completing a desired goal. In other words, God had a goal. God so loved the world that He desired to save them from His own wrath, which surely must be poured out because of their sin. His goal was to redeem a people for His own possession. Redeem a people for the glory of Christ. Redeem a humanity. Redeem a number that is beyond our capacity to understand. To the praise of His glorious grace. Or as the book of Hebrews says, His goal was to bring many sons to glory. And yet, he says, the Levitical priesthood was imperfect in that regard. It couldn't bring anyone to salvation. Beloved, if you think the Ten Commandments, you can keep the Ten Commandments and be saved, you're kidding yourself. That's not what the Ten Commandments were for. The Ten Commandments were simply for this. We don't have time to get into Galatians and the whole explanation here, or in Romans 7, but basically this. The Ten Commandments were all about exposing our sin. So that we would see it and say, oh my goodness, when I stand before God, I'm in serious trouble. God, be merciful to me. God, be gracious to me. That's what the law is for. God, I need Christ. Christ for righteousness. It's the theme of the book of of Romans. Christ for righteousness. The entire system... The Levitical priesthood, though it was ordained by the mouth of God himself, was incapable of fully satisfying the claims of infinite justice against sinful men. And so in verse 11, we learn that the Old Testament priesthood can never purify sinful men. In verses 12 through 14 last week, we learn that God never intended that this old covenant law of the priesthood would be permanent. He never intended for the Old Testament law to be permanent. And then in verses 15 through 25, we discovered that from before creation of the world, God intended to purify sinners through the ministry 
of a new high priest, a new kind of high priest. In fact, in Psalm 110, God swore that he would not change his mind on this point, that the coming Messiah would not only be a king, but a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, God had always planned to replace the Old Testament sacrificial system with a single high priest who could actually satisfy completely the justice of God. God had always planned that he would send a single high priest to make a single sacrifice that would for all eternity satisfy the infinitely holy justice of God on the part of all who would receive it by faith. It would take away sin, not just cover it. Which is why when John the Baptist saw Jesus by the river, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. Why? Why did God plan to set aside the old ineffectual system of the priesthood and sacrifice? We get our answer In the remainder of chapter 7, read with me, beginning with verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did Once for all, when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Verse 26, for it was fitting. Don't get hung up on the word fitting. An easier translation that could be supplied both here and in chapter 2 where it is used elsewhere is simply this. It was necessary. It was necessary to do what? It was necessary for God to do what? It was necessary for us to have such a high priest. It was necessary for God to send such a high priest. If God was really going to bring many sons to glory, he had to provide a perfect high priest who could offer a perfect substitutionary sacrifice. And then he contrasts for us the two kinds of high priests that he has ordained. The Old Testament high priest, this is what he says, verse 27, needy. They were needy. who does not need daily to do what? Offer sacrifices for his own sin. God, I need your mercy. God, I need your forgiveness. Can they perform something good on behalf of God's people? Yes. But nothing that can truly satisfy the wrath of God, the holy justice of God. 
they had as much spiritual debt as anyone else. They had as much spiritual debt as everyone they were trying to cover with this temporary atonement. And so they were just, they were in just as much need of a redeemer themselves. And secondly, look at verse 28. What does God say about the Old Testament priests? They were weak. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Weak in what sense? Weak in the sense that they can never bring sinful men to God's goal, which is to bring many sons to glory, purifying them of their sins, making propitiation for them. They were weak. But not Christ. His high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, who is eternal, not the Lord Jesus. He's not weak, and he is not needy. Well, well, then what is he? Verse 27, verse 26, he is holy. God's infinite justice had nothing to settle with him. Because God's infinite justice comes out of God's infinite holiness. And when God's holiness reached for the sword of justice and looked at Christ, there is nothing to find. There is nothing that needed to be satisfied. There was no imperfection. He was holy. Secondly, he is innocent. Innocent. In other words, the record of his entire life is absolutely free of any guilt. He never sinned, not even as a baby, not even as a child, not even as a teenager. He never rebelled against his parents. He was holy, innocent. He was undefiled. The sword of the Spirit can pierce any part of his being and lay before the eyes of God every single action and motive of Jesus' heart, but it will never find a single blemish. It will never find a single stain. He is holy. He is innocent. He is undefiled. He is separate. Separate. Separate from who? Separate from the rest of humanity in that he was sinless. He is the only man who ever lived. The only real human being who ever lived. Who is faced with every temptation like we are, yet without sin. He was separated due to his infinite perfections. He lived among sinners but remained in a class all of his own because he is, in fact, holy God. He is holy. He is innocent. He is undefiled. He is separate. And, last word, he is exalted. Of course he's exalted. In other words, he is highly esteemed above all others. He is the firstborn, the prototokos, the highest in rank. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why does he not need to offer sacrifices every day? 
For it was fitting, verse 26, for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of other people. Why? Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. God, holy, just, ready to unleash his wrath upon a people who have rebelled against him though he has been merciful and gracious yet loves these people so much that he was willing to pay the ultimate cost so that his justice would be satisfied and so that sinners would be saved. So that, as Paul says, God would be just and the justifier of sinners. This is not some milquetoast just judge not some milquetoast judge who looks down at, an, at a guilty party and says, I forgive you, not guilty. This is infinite holy God who could never say such a thing. His justice had to be satisfied. Oh, beloved, here is the infinite grace of God. Here is the infinite mercy of God satisfying the infinite justice of God in this. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the point of Hebrews. That is the gospel. I was listening to the radio this morning. I heard a preacher talking about how he was invited to be a part of this television program on national TV. They were going to discuss his new book. It was the day that the Texas Tech incident happened. And all of those students lost their lives. And he said that Nobody wanted to hear about my book that night, so everybody calling in wanted to ask questions about this. And he said, one irate caller said, Dr. So-and-so, tell me this, where was your God? That's a legitimate question. And he said, half of this answer is wonderful. Half of his answer was, God my God is right where he's always been since the day Jesus rose again from the dead. And I say, amen. And he said, and that's why he can have sympathy for you in your suffering. And I thought, yeah! What an opportunity for you to reveal the gospel what an opportunity for you to say what Jesus said when he was asked about, why did all those people die when the tower fell upon them? Were they more sinful than we? And Jesus said, no, do not think they were more sinful than you. But unless you repent, 
you also will perish. Unless you do business with God by which God's justice is satisfied on your account, you too will die. What he should have said was, God is where he always has been, sitting on his throne. And sometimes in his sovereignty, in his absolute control, he allows atrocities like this to remind us that it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, there's judgment. And are you ready for that judgment. That's what he should have said. And how many times are we presented with difficult questions like this? And we're so concerned about hurting feelings. We're so concerned about ruffling feather, feathers that we never get to the justice of God. So that when we present the mercy of God, it is empty. As sinners, we have incurred a great spiritual debt that we can never pay. But God, in His mercy, has provided a Redeemer. As sinners, we have made ourselves enemies of God. But God, in His great compassion, has provided a mediator. As sinners, Infinite justice looks upon us as criminals worthy of death, but God's eternal grace has provided a substitutionary sacrifice who willingly took the punishment that His justice required of us. And so I ask you, beloved, I ask you, friend, Upon what grounds do you intend to recommend yourself to this infinitely holy and just God on the day you meet him face to face? Do you think that he will overlook your sin? He cannot overlook it. His justice must be satisfied. Your debt must be paid. Yes, you can pay it yourself in hell forever. Or you can fly to Christ. You can take refuge in Christ by faith and have the wrath of God satisfied on your behalf forever. How will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Nothing less than a perfect high priest could offer the perfect sacrifice that would bring many sons to glory. And this sacrifice was offered by the perfect high priest on the day Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53 in his own body on the cross for you. Let's pray.